pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. And if you hurry, you might want to get one of the two remaining lines. We're going to start out visiting with Ed and Kathleen on just another nice Sunday morning. I tell you what, I guess only real unhappy people out there are the deer hunters that really wish it was a little colder. Uh, and I guess uh, we ranchers that were really wishing we would get a little bit more rain uh, about this time of year. But, you know, beyond that, it is just an absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous Sunday morning out there. Hoping you're planning to spend some of it outside. Hope you're going to be working in the garden or maybe out taking a walk in nature or just out there breathing some good, clean air. I tell you what, it's uh, if if there's any, yeah, there are a handful, I guess, of good things that have come out of the COVID mess. But I think a lot of people are appreciating um, even more how much how much fresh air really matters. I don't think uh, we typically dine out at lunch, and I don't think I've eaten inside of a restaurant more than a handful of times. Love those patios, love the open spaces, and boy, days like this just beg beg for you to be outside. So I hope you're going to get outside and enjoy. Let's get started with phone calls. Uh, Ed is up first. Good morning, Ed. Uh, good morning. I have a question on asparagus. Uh, yes, sir. Mine are, mine are all looking like ferns. When do I cut uh-huh. them back, and when do I harvest? The If they have not frozen by about the 1st of January, that's when I cut mine back because, of course, the part we eat is what gets up and makes the ferns if you don't uh, pick it. So um, typically, if we have a mild winter, and this one's certainly starting out mild, the asparagus can actually begin producing edible spears sometime shortly after the first of the year, and you want to just have those old ferns out of the way. Now, if we get a freeze between now and the 1st, of the year as soon as they've totally turned brown go ahead and cut them off at that point but if they haven't browned out by january 1st that's when i kind of put it on my agenda to go ahead and cut them back now harvesting how long have your plants been in the ground Uh, about three years okay so they should be well established by now Harvesting, we begin just as soon as the plants begin to come out, and we harvest every single sprout that comes up. Uh, don't let any of them go to, you know, make the the big ferns, so to speak, because when you do that, they really stop producing very many new sprouts. So you will snip, break off. Uh, they're so crisp, I just snap them off, and a lot of them get eaten before I even get out of the garden. But uh, we harvest every single one, and let's say you get called out of town for a weekend or something you come home and some of them have gotten too big to eat go ahead and cut them off anyway because that's what's going to keep the plants producing each year we can produce or we can pick for a little bit longer period of time yours have been in the ground for about three years so you can probably pick uh, every shoot that comes out for eight to ten weeks after that you'll stop uh, picking any of them and just let them go to make the fern so they can resupply the roots and start you know into the next phase of their growth so uh 
Um, in, in summary, if we don't get a freeze, it freezes them back. Cut them back around the 1st of January. If we get a freeze, freezes them back. Go ahead and cut them back any time. Start harvesting as soon as they come out. And just mark it on the calendar. Harvest for about 8 to 10 weeks and uh, enjoy. Thank you very much. You have a nice day. And you enjoy your asparagus. <laughs> Thank you, sir. All right. Kathleen is up next. Uh, good morning, Kathleen. Good morning there. I'm calling about the infamous St. Augustine grass that everyone calls about. Oh, uh, yes. I have a 40-year-old established lawn on not much dirt. We're just north of the airport. Uh-huh. And I watered it all summer. And um, the um, small mounds of dark soil, little piles, they look like coffee grounds, uh-huh. all over in the backyard. I Good. used soil activator a couple of weeks ago. I suspect insect beetle mischief. No, nope. nope. But nope. I want to know nope. what to do this week and uh, who could possibly help with that. You don't need any help at all. Those are called earthworm castings. Those are what earthworms leave in your yard. And if you have lots of those little mounds, it means you have lots of earthworms. And that is a very good thing for your yard, not a bad thing in any way, form, or fashion. Okay, so the the grass looks terrible. I mean, it's about one third green at this point, and you know, through the for through the last month or so, it looks right. very damaged. What can I do and, now? And um, uh, when was the last time you fertilized? Uh, well, I did the soil activator, but not the fertilizer two weeks ago. Okay, you need to put some fertilizer on. Soil activator is a microbial stimulant, but it does uh, doesn't contain any of the basic nutrients that your grass really needs to uh, get through the winter and get ready to make its burst of growth in the spring. So I would, uh, and you know, you can use Medina, Maestro Grow, Nature's Creation. There are a lot of good organic fertilizers out there. You do not need to look for anything that says winterizer. That's uh, Ah, uh, that's a ploy by the chemical people to get you to buy different kinds of fertilizers, which is totally unnecessary. So, um, uh, I would just, you know, get your organic fertilizer, feed not just your grass, but everything in your landscape, your trees, your shrubs, and ground covers. Is the grass continuing to turn brown, or is this damage that uh, occurred a little earlier in the fall? Um, it's it's yellow. It's not even brown. Um, okay. Yeah. Go out, go out and lift up on a couple of the yellow blades, and see if they remain fairly firmly attached to the runner underneath. If that yellowed blade separates easily from the runner, and if it looks a little brown down at the base where it came away from the runner, that could be a sign of brown patch fungus disease. If that's the case, then I would put out some whole ground cornmeal, uh, about. 10 pounds per thousand square feet but I suspect your grass is just hungry Uh, I would continue to water through the winter you don't have to water as often probably about every two weeks if we get a frost and uh, it browns out totally then you can probably go to every three weeks but do do continue watering because uh, St. Augustine needs water on a year-round basis but at this point all I'm going to tell you it really needs to be done is just get some good fertilizer on it and maintain your good watering program put out at least an inch of water each time you water like I say just put that on the calendar to do about every two weeks and you should be in great shape what about some compost did that help compost is always a good idea it uh uh you know not a thick uh layer but quarter to half an inch um uh, that's that's other than fertilizing. That's about the single best thing you can do. You can do it any time between about now and about the end of April. But the sooner you do it, the faster your grass is going to respond. 
Okay, so um, I need helping hands with this. Is there someone you could recommend that would put down the right stuff? Um, I'll tell you who will put down the fertilizer, and that would be uh, Sam Sitterly. His company's called Green Grow Organics. Um, compost spreading is a it's a very laborious thing and uh you know when i was growing up my you know spent from about the time i was five years old working in my grandfather's greenhouse and whenever we needed some laboring help my uncle knew the football coach at the high school a little ways away and he'd call the coach and the coach would always know a couple of strong young men that needed to make a little money and that's where we got our labor <laughs> to do things like spreading compost but uh um I, be careful. Get a price up front. I've heard some real horror stories. Uh, I talked to somebody earlier this week that uh, without asking, you know, the price, he paid a company to spread, I think, about eight yards of compost, which would be less than two truckloads, and they charged him like $2,500. I, I just, see. you know, be very careful of anybody with a pickup truck and a plastic sign. Um, I would recommend, I think, some of the best compost out there you can get from Stone and Soil Depot. Uh, be sure and specify you don't want uh, biosolids compost, but finding the, the labor to do it, unless you have a teenage son or grandson, like I said, my uh, we we always uh, talked to the high school coach who knew some kids that needed the money and needed the workout. Um, beyond that, you might talk to your neighbors or other people and see who they've had uh, good luck in doing it. Okay, ter- terrific. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You, you do the same, Kathleen. I appreciate the call. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, let me get a quick break in here, and then we will pick right up where we left off. I believe Lydia is up next. Um you know, talking about fertilizer, talking about good year-round fertilizer, Medina makes one of the very best ones out there and one of the most readily available ones, too. They call it Growing Green. It's uh, certified organic. It's got all the good stuff in there, fortified with extra iron and extra humates and uh, just all kinds of good things. It's great for literally everything in your landscape, as well as your vegetable garden, your flower beds. It's one of growing, it's uh, one of uh, Medina's most popular products. And golly, we go through a, we go through a truckload, which is 24 pallets. I think we go through that about every five weeks around our place. So, uh, very good stuff. Medina also makes good quality liquid fertilizers. They make the soil activator and the Medina Plus, which is like an improved soil activator. And not to mention all the other products that they, they really package rather than make them, but they do liquid and dry humates. They do orange oil. They do molasses. They do liquid seaweed if it says medina on the label it's quality it's natural it comes from right here in texas medina agriculture south texas gardening with bob webster news talk 550 ktsa and fm 1071 all right uh back to gardening and back to the phone calls actually kathleen was the first to call so it's going to be kathleen and lydia and cliff kathleen good morning I have a question on cyclamen. Yes, ma'am. Temperature, will they take freezing temperature? They will take it down into the upper teens without damage. Now, if it's going to get much below 20, and if it's going to stay there for very long, I would cover them. But uh, uh, 22, 23, 24 degrees, not a problem. And we rarely get colder than that uh, uh, here in San Antonio. So they are they're 
probably by far our best wintertime flower for the shade. And uh, this time of year, you know, they'll take a little bit of sun, but if you have them in too much sun, well, as it starts to warm up in the spring, they won't last as long. But in bright shade, golly, they'll go all the way up till early summer. And uh, unless we get very, very unusually cold weather, they will not have any problem with our winters. What about some other flowers? I have violas. Uh, we'll take the freeze. Oh, yeah. Some other flowers will take the freeze. Well, violas and pansies, of course, are both sun lovers that will take the freeze. Uh, Then there is a whole group of plants, which include snapdragons, dianthus, petunias, alyssum, um, all of those plants, if we have a cold winter, they, they don't have any problem with the cold. But they bloom in the fall, and then if it gets real cold, they continue to grow through the winter with a lot of flowers. And then they're just a solid mass of flowers in the spring, and stock also falls in that group. So snapdragon stock, petunias, dianthus, if we have a mild winter, they will continue to bloom all winter long. And uh, like I say, if it gets cold, it doesn't bother the plants. They just slow down on their blooming in January or so when we typically have the most cold. Now, in addition, there are a couple of others that uh, will take moderate cold, probably down to 25 degrees without damage. And that includes things like that cobalt blue lobelia and the alyssum, which comes in white and rose and uh, purple color. Uh, alyssum and, uh, and, and the uh, lobelia both will take a lot of cold, but they won't take it down quite as cold as the other ones will. If you really want to have flowers every day of the winter months, uh, your Johnny Jump Ups and your Bigger Pansies are the things you can count on most. Well, I want to, I want to compliment your nursery. I called several weeks ago. I needed the Johnny Jump Ups and uh-huh. pansies, etc., and petunias. And uh, when I arrived, the lady had everything I ordered in a box ready to be picked up. <laughs> Can you imagine this? Uh, I, I know all your listener, listeners will appreciate this, <laughs> that you have well. service. <laughs> You know, we, uh, we, we've had our business here for 39 years. We're having our best year ever. So we, it's just amazing. This old fashioned idea of service and quality, it's, uh, it seems to still work in today's world. <laughs> I just, I, you know, if I, I, I love doing business with independent businessmen. You know, I, I drive to comfort to do business with a lumberyard and hardware store up there rather than to go to Home Depot down the street. And we really appreciate it when people like you notice and, and thank us for it. But it's our pleasure to do so. I hope we never let you down in that regard. Oh, and one other subject, and I'll let you go. Uh, I received a letter in the mail to cut my air condition not air condition my uh, uh, sprinkling system off for November through March. Now you're telling me that or telling us that we should uh, water San Augustine all all winter, right? Yes, ma'am. You should water all of your grass all winter. Here's here's what they are trying to tell you and um uh, you know, it's it's a screwy way to do things, but it's the way that SAWS does. They determine the sewer rate they charge on your bill by how much water you use in uh, you know in the winter months, December, January, February, and in the years that we have good rains, you may not need to water very much. But this winter. It's starting off a very dry winter, and uh, supposedly we're moving into a La Nina pattern, which means we will probably stray, stay dry. And so if you want your grass to live, unfortunately, even though it will make your sewer bill a little bit higher for the next 12 months, uh, you've got to water. Now, you know, some folks, uh, 
that have the room and have uh, a big roof collect rainwater, and they save that to use during this time of year. But uh, you should definitely not stop watering, uh, but just you should realize that uh, be conservative. Water as much as you need to and no more because Oz is going gonna, is gonna to be charging you a sewer bill based on how much water you use for the next three months, and that's what that letter is all about. Yeah, do you think once a week is sufficient? I think uh, once every, as it cools down, once every two to three weeks is sufficient. Once a week should be sufficient, uh, you know, even when the very warmest weather. But right now, probably every two weeks, if we get into, uh, you know, our typical colder weather in late December and January, then once every three weeks will be enough. But definitely don't stop watering completely. Well, thanks for your your information, Bob. We'll pre- appreciate you. Bye-bye. Well, <laughs> we appreciate you, Kathleen. And uh, and uh, if you have the good Lord's here, tell him we could use some more rain, and then we won't have to water that much. But uh, it's sure dry. I know uh, up in the hill country, uh, a lot of us are going to be buying a lot of hay this winter if it doesn't turn around. But I'm, I'm not real optimistic, but uh, just, uh, like I say, don't water too often, but water thoroughly when you water, and hopefully we'll get a little rain mixed in every now and then, Kathleen. And uh, you get out and have a wonderful Sunday. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Goodbye. Uh, Lydia is up next, and then it'll be Cliff. Good morning, Lydia. Hi, Lydia. Are you there? Hi. Hi. Good morning. (laughs) Good morning. How are you today? Ah, it's just a beautiful day, and uh, I got my exercise unloading a beautiful semi full of plants this morning, so uh, I'm wide awake and going strong this morning. Hopefully, you're just enjoying your second cup of coffee and off to a a little more uh, quiet Sunday. Yes. Uh, I have a question. I heard the lady talking about the water. Uh, Yes. I thought, uh, well, I had been there to understand that if you hand water, you can. Oh, you can. You you can water. No one is prohibited from watering. You have to follow watering days if you're using a sprinkler system. You can the hand sprinkler. water. In, yeah, you can hand water anytime. But uh, what uh, she was asking about saws bases, how much uh, they're going to charge you. You know, they do a monthly sewer charge on your water bill, yeah. uh-huh. and that is that is based on how much water you use during the winter months. The idea behind it is grass is supposed to rain in the winter. And grass doesn't need as much water or the landscape doesn't need as much water unfortunately this year it is very dry and we're going to have to continue watering but um, the weather is hand watered by the sprinkler system they're going by what your water meter says so uh, you're not mm-hmm. you know you're still going to be charged if you're hand watering mm-hmm. but as far as the legality under drought stages yes you can hand water at least in this drought water, stage yes. you can hand yeah. water anytime okay uh, my question was I purchased one of the smart pot fabric planters from the yes, store, uh-huh. yeah. and um, I wanted to put onions in that. Yes, ma'am. And potatoes. Can I do? It's a twenty-gallon one. Do you think that would uh-huh. be enough for both? The- <laughs> no, I. <laughs> I think you're going to need to do, well, let me put it the way, this way. If you want to do both, you could do in that size, you could do uh, about 15 or 20 onions and about probably three uh, potato plants. Uh, I don't know how much you like potatoes and you like onions, but if if you, it's not going to give you a real big crop. Uh, let's just say I usually plant two or three hundred onions and about a, you know, thirty foot double row of potatoes. So uh, uh, you well, can certainly, <laughs> you yeah, well. Me. 
then, I did then, plant some last year. I planted some uh, rather late, but uh-huh. it was like in one of those flower pots. Yeah, and uh, they did grow, but not very much. Uh, well, but they, I got about maybe ten of them. So I wanted they, to try this this fabric planter and see if I could do that in that. Oh, they will they will grow even better in the fabric planter planter than they will in a okay. flower pot. Uh, yeah, it's a great it's a great place to grow. It's just I don't know if you'll be able to grow as many as you would like. But uh yeah, I just if I were doing that I would kinda you know, just make an invisible line down the middle and just plant your onions on one side and your potatoes on the other. Or if you say, well, I like potatoes better than onions and you two-thirds potato, one-thirds onions, or however you like to do it, they are not going to interact with each other. And unlike sweet potatoes, which I grow in a fabric pot, just because otherwise they may grow anywhere in the garden, uh, your um, Irish potatoes, uh, red skin potatoes, whatever you want to call them, they grow right at the base of the potato plant, as you know. So so uh, um, they, they're they're not going to try to take over, and uh, they will they will cohabitate, shall we say, quite well. Now, how do you plant sweet potato? Sweet potato you will plant later in the season. We normally uh, plant our other potatoes, our red skin potatoes, we normally plant in February. We normally plant our sweet potatoes in about May or so. And the way you do that is you get a sweet potato, a live sweet potato at the grocery store, probably at Whole Foods or your Sun, not Sun Harvest, but uh, Natural Grocers is my favorite uh-huh. of the organic places. You suspend it in a jar of water like most of us did as kids and let it start, you know, making the little vines. When the vines uh-huh. get about six inches long, you take a sharp knife and you just take a little section of potato along with that vine. It's called a slip. And that's what we plant to grow our sweet potatoes from. And like I say, we do that when the soil really warms up, typically about May or so. Wow, that's interesting. I had never, I didn't know that. I think that's what I'm going to do. Just wait uh, until it's season. But um, now, now sweet also- potatoes will they they spread out all over the place, and. Yeah. Unlike uh, the red skin potatoes, uh, you know, red skin potatoes, the plant's going to kind of die back uh, as we get into summer months, and you might as well go ahead and harvest the potatoes. The potato, the sweet potato just keeps growing and growing and growing, and a sweet potato never really gets ripe, so to speak. It just keeps getting bigger. So if yep. you want small sweet potatoes, you can uh, pick them, you know, you can dig them a little earlier. Uh, biggest sweet potato I've ever seen weighed 43 pounds. Uh, I think that would be a little big for most people's ovens. So <laughs> you just, by midsummer, early fall, you just start probing around with your finger and see how big those uh, those tubers are and harvest them at the size that you would enjoy cooking and enjoying. Do you, is it, is it pref, uh, preferred to um, plant the sweet potato in the ground then? You know, it, it you can do it either way. Um, when you plant okay. them in the ground, those uh, the sweet potatoes might develop five feet or ten feet away from the central plant. So sometimes you have to dig up half the garden to find out where your sweet potatoes oh, are. Okay, I so grow the, the sweet potatoes. Yeah, yeah. in okay. the fabric pot, I, I don't have nearly as much space that I have to go hunting for the potatoes. So that's why I grow I grow the, the red skins in the ground, but then I grow the uh, sweet potatoes in the fabric pot just because oh. they, can't, they can't go and hide on me. And the container should be uh, uh, full to the top with the, with the uh, whatever dirt I put in there? 
I, I get it real close. Yeah, I, I get it real close because, you know, in a in a flower pot, you want to leave it down a little bit just so when you water, uh, it'll mm-hmm. collect and soak in. But those sides on the fabric pots don't really stand up very well. So I fill them, and then, of course, the soil settles settles a little bit over the growing season. But when mm-hmm. I start out, I have, I have them full, full to the brim. Okay, all right. Well, I thank you so much for your information, and uh, God bless you, and thank you so much for your service that you provide well, to it us. Is, it is my great <laughs> pleasure, and uh, keep in mind now, if you're using the good organic fertilizers and all, you never have to replace that soil. You use the same soil year after year after year in that fabric pot, So, oh, uh, and it, awesome. it just keeps getting better, so don't don't feel like you have to dump it out and start over ever. Do I have to put fertilizer in, in that soil you know i do a little dry fertilizer when i plant and then while they're growing i'll hit them with the liquid fertilizer my dry fertilizer carries them for the first couple of months and after that i start uh, fertilizing every couple of weeks with a liquid product like has to grow or something like that uh just the more you fertilizer i'm sorry a dry fertilizer what what uh what brand or what Um, Any of the good organic ones. Uh, uh, Medina makes a good one they call Growing Green. Uh, Like to say, uh, Nature's Creation makes a good one they call Premium Lawn Food, but it's also great for the garden. Maestro Grow makes a product they call Texas Tea, T-E-E. Any of those are great organic fertilizers. And uh, I just, I, I go shopping and see where I get the best price. And, of course, for me, I get the broken bags when the guys get a little careless with the forklift and they rip up a bag. Uh, that that's what goes home to my garden. Oh, <laughs> that's usually that's, awesome. that's, that's usually Medina. <laughs> what's <laughs> okay? I, I get the leftover plants and the broken bags, but that's not a bad thing. No, not at all. Yeah. Okay. Well, you have a wonderful day, sir. You too, Thank Lydia. You so Thanks so much for the call. My pleasure. Yeah, Goodbye. Bye-bye. All right, let me get a little break out of the way here, and Cliff will be up next, and we just go right on from there. I get to talk to you about the Freeze Miser, and once again, if you've never heard of this little device, something that I learned about last year, they've been around a little bit longer, but they're mainly used up in the northern part of the country where the temperatures get extremely cold, but this is a, it's just one of the most clever gadgets I've ever seen. No batteries, no wires, no electricity, it's based on some good chemistry and some good physics, and it's a little device that you screw onto your hydrants. If you're worried about your hydrants freezing and breaking in the winter months, I know living up in the country like I do, for most of my life, I've gone out and turned those hydrants on to drip whenever it's going to get really, really cold. And I've had a couple of faucets freeze and break anyway. Well, the freeze miser takes care of that. You screw this little device onto the hose, onto the hydrant, rather, and you turn the water on. Nothing comes out. It just sits there. It's not wasting a drop of water, but it senses when the temperature of the water in the hydrant gets down to 40 degrees, it automatically starts dripping just a little bit. If it gets really cold, it drips a little bit more, just enough to keep the faucet from freezing, and when it warms up, it stops dripping. It's just what could be simpler. Think how much water you waste when you turn that on at 9 o'clock at night, and it stays dripping till 9 o'clock the next morning. Probably only needs to drip for about two hours 
during the night. Well, with the freeze miser, it only drips during <laughs> the time that you really need it to drip. They're just really, really ingenious. Like I say, they can be used on a on a cattle water trough. Uh, what I do is I put a little Y connector on there. I put my freeze miser on one side and leave the garden hose on the other side. And, uh, you know, that way I just don't worry. And so many times last winter when it got below freezing up in the hill country where I live, I'd look out in the morning and here's drip, 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 drip. No freeze problems. Afternoon when I go back home, it shut itself off automatically. Freeze Miser is a neat device. You can go online and learn more about them at freezemiser.com. They are sold by better hardware stores, by nurseries. Uh, again, if you're up in the hill country, I know you find them at Boners here in San Antonio. We keep them. Uh, I think most of the better nurseries have them on the shelves. If not, they should. It's called the Freeze Miser, M-I-S-E-R. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, it's a beautiful Sunday morning out there. We're talking gardening, and I'm going to talk to Cliff and Robert and Vicki, and Cliff is up first. Good morning, Cliff. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Uh, my question is about leaf miners on my Meyer lemon and uh, my... Uh, Mexican lime plant. They're what's bad the, this year. They're the worst I've ever seen this year. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're a nuisance. They're not a health threat to the plant, but they they are a real nuisance. The problem is that, uh, you know, they're inside the leaf, so it's very hard to kill them. Um, I don't know why they're so bad this year. There's a little wasp out there that actually, and I've seen uh, Disney actually uh, over at Epcot, they, they took pictures, uh, as only Disney can do, of this little wasp walking around on the leaf, locating the leaf miner, and then in effect killing it by laying an egg inside of it, puncturing the the surface of the leaf and laying an egg inside of it. So uh, normally we don't see many of them because of this wonderful little wasp, but apparently the weather or something has set their population back, and I'm seeing more leaf miners than, than I've ever seen. Now, the one systemic product that you can use, uh, if you like, would be uh, neem, N-E-E-M, neem oil. Is both an insecticide and a fungicide, and it's made from a Brazilian tree. It's a you know very safe natural product. Yes. What I think we will probably be doing is um, waiting until the lemons and limes are ripe. And I mean, this stuff is it, it's safe, but again, I don't I, anything that kills bugs. I don't especially want to eat it. So what we're probably <clears throat> going to do with our citrus is uh, when we pick this year's crop of lemons and limes, then we're going to make two or three sprayings with neem to see if we. Can can't uh, uh, get rid of these guys. Now, what happens ultimately, the leaf miner turns um, into a little bit different creature. It drops out of the leaf and goes down into the soil where it goes through a different life stage and then it comes back, turns into a, you know, a creature that flies around and the whole thing starts all over again. Over the winter months, I think putting out some beneficial nematodes will be a real good idea to kill the, uh, the uh, life stage that is in the soil at that point. But what we're going to do, like I say, is pick our fruit for this year, do two, three sprayings with neem, but not lose any sleep. We'll keep up our fertilizing. We'll keep up our good care on the citrus because, like I say, this really isn't life-threatening. It's just ugly. So uh, uh, that's, that is sort of the long and the short of the uh, citrus leaf miner. 
Okay, I've been uh, removing the leaves and getting getting those out of the way. So that's fine. I, that's fine. But I've seen some trees where that would mean taking every leaf off the tree. <laughs> but yeah. uh, dispose of the leaves. Don't just uh, put them in the compost pile. Uh, physically, you know, throw them in the burn pile or seal up in a plastic bag and send them off to the landfill. I don't okay. recommend doing that with most leaves. But the ones that have the leaf miners in them, uh, it, it'd be be good to totally dispose of them. I appreciate the help. I appreciate the call. You have a wonderful Sunday, Cliff. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. Certainly. Goodbye. Robert's up next. Good morning, Robert. Robert dropped off. How dare him do that? We'll call back if you if your phone gave up on you, Robert, and we'll talk to Vicky instead. Good morning, Vicky. Morning. Um, so embarrassed about my question. Don't Can you hear me? me? I hear you just fine, and don't be well, embarrassed. I, I, years I, I taught freshman biology, I always found that if a if a student thought it was a stupid question, at least ninety percent of the audience wanted a uh, wanted an answer to that. So, give me your question. That that's true. That's true. Well, I almost gave an alias. That embarrassed I am. <laughs> so I broke my back last year uh-huh. building this beautiful raised bed stone butterfly garden. Okay. And then at the end of the year, I broadcast um, marigold and zinnia seed, you know, from the deadheads. Uh-huh. And in the springtime, these little plants came up, and I thought they were marigolds. And basically, I have no idea how I did it, but I have the best crop of ragweed I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> it's about waist high, and I can't see any of my perennials of my butterfly, and it's that bad. Uh-huh. So I'm calling to see if you have any irritation advice well, other than back-breaking again. You know, I, I, I'm afraid your best bet is to try to pull it before it totally goes to seed. Unfortunately, a lot of it's probably already making seed. You can also just cut it yep. off at ground level. It uh, typically dies out. Ragweed is usually an annual unless we just have no winter at all. So oh. if you would prefer... You can just cut it off and dispose of the tops in the compost pile or somewhere before it has a chance to make seed everywhere. If it sprouts out, uh, that just depends on what the weather does. You can always hit it with a little vinegar and orange oil that will cut it back. But uh, I would either cut it off or pull it out just because it makes a huge amount of seed and um, of course it releases plenty of pollen in the air and whereas nice plants have nice little round pollen grains that don't bother anything if you looked at the pollen grain under a microscope of ragweed it's this little spike covered round ball that looks like that old mason chain they used to fight with in the middle ages and that's why it just tears up your uh your uh, allergies so much but uh, yeah i'd either cut it off or pull it up and uh, don't you know you don't have to do it all the same day take it easy on that back and don't don't you know just just get it done before they start making all the little seeds that go everywhere and start the will do over. will do i have one more embarrassing question <laughs> go right ahead so i tried one of my experiments this year is uh uh cover crop and uh-huh. i did some turnip seed cover crop in my veggie bed uh-huh. and um then i went and planted my garlic um in the bed and i totally forgot i planted them both in the same bed mm-hmm. and now i'm worried that the turnip cover crop is going to overtake the garlic should i pull up all those seedlings 
Only, only if they, you know, become an issue. Uh, turnips, you know, they're one of those things that you can enjoy the greens, you can enjoy the bulb itself. Yeah. Uh, but I, you know, they they should, unless they get so big that they're shading the garlic out, they should uh, get along okay in the garden. Neither okay. one of them is really okay. going to affect the other. So uh, only if one of them gets a little too vigorous, and at that point it goes uh, out of the garden and into the stew pot. Oh, oh, I hope my feeble mind helps somebody else today. Thank you. <laughs> well, I've believe me, I've heard far stranger questions <laughs> than that. <laughs> be be not embarrassed. You're just helping a lot of people that uh, that were afraid to call and ask a question that's on their mind. So you get out and have a great Sunday, Vicky. I appreciate you. Thank you. you. God bless you. Bye bye. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, guess I better do uh, my last break of the hour, and then we'll get back to more phone calls. So I have a couple of open lines. Grab one if you like. You know the number, 210-599-5555. I get to talk about Wild Birds Unlimited, and that's always so much fun. And Kyle wants to remind you, uh, they've got several tips to help you do what's right by your birds, so to speak, and uh, just make the make the fall more fun. But he wants to remind you that birds change, well, birds change, and but birds also change their diets in the winter months. Uh, a lot of their diet switches over to uh, high fat and protein things, and that's what they've got suet for. Wild Birds Unlimited has bunches of different kinds of suet and uh, very inexpensive suet feeders that you can use to offer it to the birds in. They also have a winter blend of seeds for, uh, you know, black oil sunflower and things like that that the birds need for that extra extra warmth in the winter months. It's just you, you don't just do the same thing year-round in your garden. You don't just do the same thing year-round with your birds. And Wild Birds Unlimited totally understands this and uh, will help you do, do right by your birds, so to speak. You know, they've also... Uh, going to make your Christmas shopping a little easier as well. They put together some great gift packages that contain everything that someone would need to get started with bird feeding. All you need to do is put a bow on it and put it under the tree for them. And by the way, now through Thanksgiving, 20% off your total bill, everything in the store. They call this the Black Friday sale, and they're stretching it out all the way up to the week after Thanksgiving. So uh, just uh, just many, many good reasons to go see Wild Birds Unlimited. They're open seven days a week. They're out there in the shopping center at the corner of Northwest Military and Hebner Road, right there on the little section that faces Northwest Military. If you've not been, you need to get by and see our friends at Wild Birds Unlimited. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, let's get back to gardening and do the phone calls. It's going to be Mike and Kid and Christine, and Mike is up first. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob. This old damp, foggy weather is about to get <laughs> Charlie down. <laughs> Well, I wish you'd just turn into a nice liquid uh, stream and come come floating down, but you know we just don't have any choice in the matter. Well, it will. It'll come about. Uh, yeah. I'm just sitting here waiting for the sunshine. Uh, I have a couple of questions. One, Bob, I had talked to you before about a tree I have, a little tree, maybe seven feet tall. Uh-huh. <laughs> Excuse me. It's uh, what I call an anacahuita. A Mexican yeah, sweet a, olive. Yeah, uh-huh. uh huh. It has maybe five or six, seven uh, shoots coming out right at the very bottom. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to trim those off and propagate them. 
and I believe you said wait to November. What? Uh, how would I best do that? Well, you want to be sure that it is mature wood, and you're probably not going to use the whole shoot. You're probably going to use just about, uh, I normally keep the cuttings to about four, maybe five inches long, strip off the lower leaves. The best thing... You know, uh, good coarse sand like decayed granite or something like that is a good rooting medium. And uh, the white volcanic material they call perlite, P-E-R-L-I-T-E. Both of those are good medium, uh, good media for rooting hardwood cuttings like that. So uh, I take the cuttings, soak them in liquid seaweed and water combination, soak them for about 30 minutes or so. Put them in the rooting medium in an 8-inch pot. You can put probably 8 or 10 cuttings to the pot. Uh, keep them bright but no direct sun. Keep them, um, protect them from freezing and keep that medium moist. And by spring, at least a percentage of them should have uh, rooted out for you. Normally, it takes about, oh, about three months for hardwood cuttings to root over the winter months. But um, you should be pretty successful at it. How, how, how long does it take, uh, roughly? Usually three to four months. Three to four months. I have perlite, but I do not have any uh, of the sand. What type of sand were you saying? Uh, Any coarse sand, sandblasting sand, or even granite sand. But if you have perlite, that's all you need. Uh, Well, in perlite, they tend to things tend to fall over. There's not enough uh, uh, beef to the to the stuff to keep them from falling over. Well, you need to you need to stick your cutting a little further down in. You know, I I tend to root in a usually in a pot that's about at minimum of six inches deep, and a woody cutting like this, uh, I'm going to probably put uh, two inches of the stem down into the perlite and three inches above that. And uh, if they're falling over, you're probably just not putting them deeply enough into the perlite. Strip off the lower leaves so you're putting a clean stem, but uh, stick them well down in the perlite and be careful you know in moistening it that you're not just you know send them a too strong a blast of water and uh, they should stand up just fine okay well i got that down i do want to ask you here a few weeks ago you mentioned something about i didn't get it exactly but i thought you said cedar side to mm-hmm. kill or repel roaches and scorpions and snakes yeah. and spiders right uh, well, what it's there are several different cedar oil repelling products out there. Cedar side is one. Um, different companies put them up in you know under different names. Cedar repel, cedar side, um, and you will find uh, both dry granules and you'll find the liquid. I think the liquid is a little more effective, but perhaps doesn't last quite as long as the granular form does. But they're obviously uh, totally safe. There's absolutely no harm to them at all. But they do a pretty good job of repelling fleas, repelling uh, lots of different noxious creatures, including roaches and scorpions. And to some extent, they even repel reptiles. Okay. Uh, spiders also? uh Nah, there's not much that runs off spiders. I've heard coconut oil will, but I spiders are a whole different group of creatures. They're arachnids. And, arachnids. Uh, 
Yeah, they yeah, there's not not a lot that really repels them. Cedar may have a slight effect because, of course, uh, spiders are closely related to scorpions, and it does it does help repel scorpions. But uh, I'm I'm sure not going to make any promises on the spiders. I haven't heard it, found anything yet that really works well. If it is a web spinning spider, it's probably a friend because they, you know they're capturing insects. But uh, if there are any web makers that you want to get rid of, you can just simply spray the webs with ammonia and it'll dissolve that web and the spider will have to go elsewhere but um, uh, uh, spiders are, are even though they're your friends they can be a nuisance with all their web building so uh, good luck with that one well okay I don't mind the spiders except I did kill a few that looked like uh, brown recluse yeah. I didn't want to take a chance with them how about rosemary oil uh, rosemary oil is pretty good, uh, pretty good uh, material. Be careful not to get too much of it on your plants, or it can burn. Well, I'm thinking about around the edge of my uh, tool shed. Oh, around, yeah, around your tool shed, that would be just fine. In fact, you could mix cedar oil and rosemary oil together. South Texas gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. Two one zero five nine nine fifty five fifty five. All right, back to gardening on a, it's a humid day, but you know, it's shorts and t-shirt weather, <laughs> so that's okay with me. It doesn't have to be cold to make me happy, just uh, glad we're away from the 90 and 100 degree weather, but uh, let's uh, let's get back to your questions, and uh, did Mike have another question, uh, Don? Uh, yeah, Bob, I, I have a comment, maybe okay. it's better for Dr. Kirby, but uh a couple of nights in a row, I had my uh, suet feeders down on the ground, my black oil sunflower seed, my mealworms feeders uh-huh. was all on the ground. And so I started bringing them in at night. Then I set me out a trap, and I got the cutest little old gray fox you ever wanted to see. <laughs> yes, sir. The question I had about it, or the comment, is, did that booger climb the trees and get these uh, suet feeders and other... Uh, bird feeders down foxes can climb um coyotes cannot but foxes can climb and you will occasionally see a fox pretty far up in a tree now they don't have the claws that dig in they can't go up a tree like a bobcat uh, or a house cat can but uh, they could be responsible if they just were down on the ground that would be one of the culprits the most likely culprit are the blasted raccoons but they usually not only knock things down but tear things up so uh Possibly, yes, could be a fox. More likely, I'd say it's probably raccoons. I was expecting a raccoon because that has happened before, but uh, I have not had a coon in a while, and it happened to be just when uh, the fox was around. And I figure uh-huh. I have seen one climb a tree up yeah. about 20 feet, but... Now, the, the red fox will do that. The gray fox, not so much, but all of them can climb. So uh, they are very definitely high on the list of suspects. Well, I let the, I didn't shoot it. My wife didn't want me to shoot it, so I let it go. And it ran down the sidewalk about 20 or 30 feet, stopped, sat down, and turned around and looked at me. Well, they're... They're they're cute in my book. Pretty is as pretty does, and they're not high on my target list. But uh, 
Um, I, you know, I, I just assume they weren't around the yard, so uh, they get transported to a far, far edge of the property if they get into my traps. But uh, again, I'll, I'll take them over, over coons and some other troublemakers at any time. So, yes, sir. Uh, you got to see, you got to see a, a pretty part of nature. Just, of course, always be very, very careful and handling them because they are one of the, uh, one of the prime culprits when it comes to spreading rabies around. Rabies, so, uh, yes, sir. Yeah. Well, I, I thank you for listening to me, and uh, I'll let somebody else get in uh, on the air that's great appreciate it mike and that somebody would be kit who is up next good morning kit hey hey bob how are you today i'm good thank you how about you doing wonderful i've actually got two questions two questions for you uh the first one is i know you said in the past that some hay has some uh herbicides or something in it that can kill other plants well, I put um, hay in the bottom of my chicken coop, and I use that and put it in my composter. Once it decomposes, is that still in there, or will that stuff carry through? It depends on what the hay has been sprayed with. Unfortunately, the most common spray out there these days is uh, something called picloram, sold as P plus D or Grazon, various different names, and it does not break down. It uh, it stays. In fact, uh, there's nothing known to man that breaks it down. Uh, most toxins. Now, other products out there, even your your strong dangerous insecticides and things, they will be broken down. They will be decomposed. But unfortunately, the weed killer that many many hay growers use does not break down. So, uh, if you want to do a test and see if the picloram is still in there. Uh, it's not difficult. Kid, take a take a five-gallon bucket, stuff it full of that hay, and then fill it with water. Let it soak overnight, and then take that water out and find a broadleaf weed, like a dandelion or henbit, something like that. Pour your water over it and watch it for a day or two. If the weed starts to get brown edges, starts to shrivel and die, you will know that uh, that you have too much herbicide still in that hay. Now, that the way it works, uh, this herbicide does not kill grass, which is why they can spray it on the hay, but it kills everything else. So, um, you know, just just be very wary of it. And um, like I say, that is that is a simple test to tell if you've got a damaging amount of herbicide left in the hay. And a lot of it has it, but uh, uh, it's hard to find hard to find hay that hasn't been sprayed these days. So probably not good a good thing to decompose and then or put in your compost bin that goes in your garden then, right? Uh, no, probably not. And now, if you're you're using it as bedding, you say for your uh, poultry, for chickens and all. Yes, exactly. Yep. Yep. You can still use if you can separate the manure from the hay. Your chicken manure is still very much usable. Uh, for the problem that so many people, the way people have just totally destroyed beds, is they've gone around and collected uh, cattle manure and horse manure. And with these animals, that the herbicide comes right out the back end of the cow or the horse in the manure, and then everywhere you use the manure, it winds up killing everything. And uh, as the you know, as an environmentalist will tell you, the only solution to pollution is dilution. And eventually, it gets diluted down to where it's not as much of a problem, but that can take years. I've seen people literally have to take all the soil out of their garden, out of their pots, things like that. There's been more than one compost company put out of business from selling tainted products. So just be very, very careful where you use your hay. All right. 
And then my second con- con- question concerns leaf malt with all of these wonderful oak leaves coming yep. down right now. Yeah. Um, so after, so I composted them in the spring and that is pretty much now broken down real good. To make that into a valuable potting soil, do I need to add anything to that leaf malt? Depends on what you're going to grow. In general, yes, I would add a few other things. I probably would add, uh, uh, I like adding things like a little bit of green sand. I like adding a little bit of molasses. I uh, Frequently, I will add a little bit of uh, lava sand to it. I think lava sand is a great, great thing to put in soils because it's uh, hygroscopic. It actually attracts and holds water without keeping things just spongy wet. Uh, beyond that, just depending on what you're growing, you can add a little bit of uh, blood meal or bone meal. You can add a little bit of green sand. Uh, there are lots of different things. Zeolite is something that's becoming more and more popular as a micronutrient source. So uh, uh, those those are all things that I would consider adding to it to make it into an excellent potting soil. Okay. All right. I will start doing that then. All right. Thank you, Bob. That's all I had this morning. I appreciate it. One other thing, Kit, uh, you can actually, with your hay, you can actually mm-hmm. do your Picloram test before you put it uh, out. In fact, um, generally speaking, you're probably buying your hay from uh, the same source over and over, and they are probably using the same source on their hay. So you might test some of the hay before it goes into the chicken coop, and if you find you're getting good, clean hay, um, just, again, tell your supplier you appreciate it. Ask him to uh, continue to uh, get the rancher farmer who's growing that for him to continue to do it without the herbicide. And uh, uh, sometimes it's easier to know beforehand than to try to find out afterwards. Afterwards. Okay. All right. I'll start doing that. Thank you, Bob. You are welcome, and you have a wonderful Sunday out there. Uh, let's go ahead and talk to Christine. Good morning, Christine. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing pretty good, thank you. Uh, two quick questions. Um, uh-huh. One is, yesterday I heard you mention uh, blood meal to keep critters out of flower pots and such. Right. Uh huh. And you said the dogs will dig it up. Will it keep cats out of your flower pots? Oh man, there's not much of anything. <laughs> It'll keep a cat. Probably the the most effective thing I've ever found to keeping cats out of flower pots is to get some uh, lava rock. You know, not the not the real fine lava gravel, but lava is very sharp. It's very uncomfortable on the tender pads on a kitty cat's feet. And lava as a mulch will frequently keep the cats from wanting to dig in those pots. Uh, unfortunately, the bud meal, while it works on raccoons and squirrels and possums and armadillos and things like that, uh, the cats don't seem to pay much attention to it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, they don't pay attention to anything. Um <laughs> Another question is, I was looking up a pond plant, and I found an article that said canna lilies. Is this same canna lilies that grows in the yard, or is there two different species? There, there are more than one species. Just about any canna will adapt to a water culture. Um, I like some of the smaller varieties. There are some variegated cannas that actually are grown, you know, more for their uh, colorful foliage than there are for the flowers. And uh, some of the some of the more dwarf varieties. Now, the the thing about 
any plant, as you've undoubtedly heard me say many times, is a plant grows a totally different root in the water than it does in soil. And so yeah. it's best not just to dig up something out of the yard and then stick it in the into the garden. If you go somewhere like Water Garden Gems, they're going to have some that have spent their whole life in water, and they will have some varieties that stay at a more reasonable size. But uh, the other thing you can do is you can just take your can of rhizomes when they are basically rootless. Uh, in fact, in the fall of the year when you'll see them start showing up in nurseries, uh, you can just cut off any roots they have. You can put them, you know, kind of right at uh, um, soil level in the pot that you're going to put in the pond and you don't ever use potting soil as you probably know when you're putting plants in a pond you just use the garden soil because you don't want all the rich organic material in there and uh, you can start and if you start them getting the roots established in water then they will do quite well rather than having to have a bunch of roots die and you know make new roots uh, if you're going to plant up cannabis that you already have for use I would do it in the fall and I basically cut off the roots that are on there but uh, my choice just simply because I think you get better varieties is usually to head over to water garden gems and see what see what they have already growing in pots for you okay awesome I appreciate it thank you so much appreciate the call thank you <laughs> goodbye all right a couple of open lines grab one if you'd like 210-599-5555 I get to talk to you for a moment about the cedar eater of Texas and you know, you've heard me talk so many times about all the damage that second growth cedar does to our hill country. It's just, uh, it just takes away all the things we love most. Uh, wildflowers won't grow under the cedar trees because it uh, shades them out too much. We don't have nearly as much water coming into our creeks or down into our aquifers because the cedar holds it in its needles, catches and holds the first half inch of rain that falls. And lots of the year, we don't have any rains over half an inch. So basically, no water gets to the ground underneath those cedar trees. Nice thing about the cedar eater is the way they get rid of the cedar is with a machine that cuts it off at ground level, killing it effectively and then grinding it into a nice mulch all in one operation. That mulch helps improve the soil. That mulch helps hold moisture in the soil and it does uh, so many good things. Plus you're eliminating the fire hazard that cedar poses and when the weather is really dry. I can't say enough bad things about cedar or enough good things about the cedar eater. Been at it for many, many years. They have other services too, taking down big trees that may have died of drought or oak wilt safely. Uh, they even have mesquite uh, pulling the machine called the grubber that rips the mesquite out of the ground, roots and all. But the main business, still clearing the land of cedar. If you're down in South Texas and need to clear those senderos, of course, you know, that kind of brush may come back. But boy, talk about the easy way to do it. The cedar eater can clear miles of senderos in a single day. Learn more. Give them a call. 210-745-2743. It's 210 745-2743 for the Cedar Eater of Texas. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on a nice Sunday out there. Just a great day for gardening. Warm enough that you can be comfortable. Yeah, you'll sweat a little bit. Uh, I'll be drinking lots of water with that good electrolyte uh, called Ultima in there, but uh, <laughs> at least you won't have to put on a heavy coat to get outside and enjoy today. We're going to talk to Regina and Pat and Gary in that order. Regina is up first. Good morning. Good, good morning. Can you hear me? I hear you just fine. Great, great. 
Um, I have a question about that tail and clay that you had kind of recommended for mm-hmm. the grasshoppers. And is yes. it possible that, that I have grasshoppers eating up an avocado right now? Is it? Are they gone? They are not totally gone. Their numbers are way down. But there are still some grasshoppers out there. I was out, you know, watering in my yard by hand a couple of nights ago and uh, flushed out two or three big ones. Uh, I've got fast feet, and that took care of that problem fairly quickly. But uh, there are still some uh, grasshoppers out there. So, yes, until we get a hard freeze, uh, again, they're not they're not the huge numbers of them that we sometimes see in uh, July and August. But uh, there's still a few of them out there. Okay. Well, I was seeing um, um, the deer got a hold of three branches, but I was seeing some damage on another one, and I thought I had isolated them away from the deer. So I was wondering if maybe the grasshoppers. So, so, um, so the question is: um, I've been looking for the kaolin, and do you carry that? We get a product which is the same product. It's sold under a different name. It's called Surround WP. Okay. Unfortunately, it's a little more expensive. That's why I always send people to the hobby shop first. But uh, uh, if you can't find it, look for Surround, and uh, it's it's okay. fairly widely available. Yeah. Okay. And is that 25-pound bag, is, it, is that what you're carrying? Um, it's, you know, I'd have to go look on the shelf. I believe we have it a little bit smaller bag. Not everybody oh, needs okay. uh, that much at okay. one time. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I see that the use of it was actually even, um, to kind of protect some plants and stems from sunburn. Well, it's, is, yeah. It, am it, I right? It, yes. The, uh, the, upside of it is it's almost kind of like a whitewash it does create a bit mm-hmm. of a right. film that can protect from sunburn uh it actually can be you can make it uh just almost a paste out of it and paint it on the trunk of trees uh in the hot summer months now that's not going to be an issue this time of year but uh right, right. The, the the downside is is that it's not very pretty so it's certainly not something you're going to want to be doing on your house plants but uh, right. uh it is the best way we have found of defeating the grasshoppers but in all honesty this late in the season i doubt that they're going to do serious damage before you go to the trouble of you know trying to spray up into a tree i i my suspicion would be that it's more likely caterpillars and grasshoppers but uh i can't i can't totally rule the grasshoppers off the grasshoppers will typically leave a much more ragged chewed looking area caterpillars tend to leave a little bit smoother leaf surface but in both cases they can devour lots of leaves but uh, i can't rule out grasshoppers but i have to tell you i would be more suspicious of caterpillar damage and those you can control pretty easily with uh, bt with little molasses added to it oh yeah Okay, great. And you mentioned that you do something that about uh, salvaging the broken um, bags and then and and the plants. If if I tend to try to do that here and there, what is there a solution other than, uh, or is there like a what am I trying to say, uh, like a remedy that you use when you do salvage some of those um, that are scratch and dent plants? Um, 
you know, that's that's a great question, but it's a tough question to answer. And it, it kind of depends on what the problem with a plant is. If a plant, you know, has root damage, let's say it's uh, either gotten too wet or too dry, uh, where you have root damage, uh, Garrett Juice and Super Thrive are two products that both, uh, and then Super Thrive, I, it's, it's an interesting product, and uh, the old man that invented it and sold it for about 90 years, I think, was uh, one of the strangest characters I've ever known, but I have literally seen it bring plants back that I thought were dead. Uh, the Garrett Juice is also a very good plant reviver where, where you've had root damage problems. On the other hand, if you have plants that have suffered physical damage, uh, in that case, it's usually you know much easier, and I just kind of trim off anything that is shredded or broken. Um, sometimes I'll use uh, just a good liquid fertilizer like has to grow plant. I'll make absolutely certain that I'm keeping the plants in the right amount of light. But plants that are physically, you know, damaged through <laughs> a careless truck driver or you know somebody right. just knocking them over, puppy dog tails. There are many things that can damage plants. But in those cases, the plant has a good strong root system. The plant recovers very very quickly. So okay. the the answer is yes. There are many things you can do in a scratch and dent situation. I love that. I love that description. But you first of all have to figure out what the problem with the plant is, because you'll very okay. definitely use a different technique where you've uh, where you've lost roots than where you've lost top of the plant. Okay, so I wasn't so far off. If it is a root problem, we need to revive that, and obviously, and and and. Um, Super Thrive, you said, and, and yes. Garrett Juice. Yes, and, and Garrett Juice. Now, or. One, one mistake, and or, you can use both, you can use one or the other. One mistake that I see people make very commonly is they take a plant that has been shocked one way or another, and they immediately want to repot it. They say, oh, you know, I've been going to get rid of all that old soil and, you know, put new soil in. That's, that's like having an operation when you already had the flu. That's real hard on the plant. And I do not recommend repotting a plant unless there is some sort of toxin in the soil. And that's that's not very often the case. So uh, if a plant needs to be repotted, I always tell people, do what you need to to get some new growth started. But don't repot until you see some new foliage appearing, until you see new healthy growth coming out on the plant. Big mistake to take a plant that's already sick and then put it through the shock of trying to transplant it. So when you see new growth, that's the point that you might want to consider transplanting. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Good questions. I appreciate the call, and I thank you. Good. All right. Bye-bye. Goodbye. All right. Guess I better get a break out of the way here and once again get to talk about somebody that does great things for lots of people out there, and that's Sam Sitterly and his service, Green Grow Organics. Now, he doesn't have the kind of crew that's going to come in and do major landscape work and things like that. Sam's crew and he uh, himself specialize in doing the things that really can make all the difference in how well your landscape does, like, uh, you know, like fertilizing, like compost tea application, like putting out the beneficial nematodes or, you know, treating for the various problems. 
these are things that really need to be done, but uh, it's good to have somebody who really knows what they're doing, good to have somebody that always uses organics to control problems, and good to have somebody that's not going to tie you to a long-term contract and charge you a fortune. <laughs> Sam's been doing this for a lot of years, close to 30 years now, as a matter of fact, and everything he does is organic. He uses products that we would approve of and would trust very much, and, uh, you know, again, he can do as much or as little as you want him to do. It all starts with free consultation. Actually, it probably all starts with you going to his website, which is Green Grow, spelled out G-R-O-W, GreenGrowOrganics.com. Take a look at the services he offers. Take a look at his many, many satisfied customers and referrals. Uh, then, if you like, you can give him a call. He will come out following all the COVID guidelines and give you more or less an evaluation of what he sees that would benefit your landscape, would get things uh, really looking beautiful, and then simply decide how much of it you want him to do how much of it you want to do yourself lots of people do this lots of people come away very happy lots of people gain a little bit more time to do the things they want to do and most importantly your plants get fertilized and cared for at the right time that's sam sitterly green grow organics south texas gardening with bob webster news talk 550 ktsa and fm 1071 All right, back to gardening on a nice uh, Sunday morning out there. It's Pat and Gary and JT, and Pat is up first. Good morning, Pat. Hi, Bob. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning to you. Um, I have a cat question, and I heard the other lady asking, but mine's a little more serious than that. <laughs> okay. Um, cats have, for probably three years, mm-hmm. have decided that the garden two feet from my front door is their litter box and my uh, front door and the mat. Uh, uh, so they went all over that. So the uh-huh. paint has peeled off my door at the bottom. Um, and I've had, you know, 55 suggestions from people on the next door app, you know, mm-hmm. none of which have worked. Uh, I currently have little plastic spikes in the garden I threw away the rug and got a rubber one, and now they're wetting on the rubber one. You know, the other one was a kind of a, I don't know what you call it, like strawish, you know, that kind. This one is just solid, just plain rubber, and now they're still wetting on the door and the mat. Uh, People have said, you know, get a a water uh, motion sensor. Well, that won't work because it would have to face my front door. (laughs) I wouldn't it's, be able to go out my front door without getting covered with water. Yeah, this and, and it makes for a very humorous situation and a few uh, funny at home videos. But uh, yeah, are these, but I can these... Not, nothing? I've put uh, vinegar. I've sprayed vinegar. I've put cayenne pepper. Uh, 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 mothballs. These, uh, these, nothing. These your your cats or neighborhood cats? No, no, not my cats. No, I don't have okay. any cats. Okay, or dogs. Um, <laughs> That's it's funny that they would uh, that they would spray. You know, I can see them liking that nice soft soil in your flower beds, but this spraying the the door of the mats. Oh, I I can understand that. And I yeah. you know when I got rid of that other mat, I cleaned the door all off. You know, I mean I didn't use anything but water, but I used an old towel and cleaned the whole door and sure. the threshold. And now well, the wooden the wooden threshold is all discolored because some of that seeps under oh, yeah. the door to that, you know. Yep. 
And um, so now uh, I've had that mat about a month, and and it was, everything was okay. And then now I'm noticing you you can tell that yeah. you know yeah. on the door you can tell where they've sprayed it again, and uh, of... it's wet under the mat because of course it's sure. rubber. So yeah. you know yeah. Well, there let's address the issue in the flower beds first of all, and the best way and i had mulch in it uh you know originally uh that didn't help Uh, oh and the second day after i put those uh uh, did i say i got a little plastic spiky things okay the second day one of them pooped right on top of that (laughs) (laughs) like take this yeah take this and uh Uh, And then there's another part, uh, there's a raised bed that goes along the front of my house and the porch. And at the end, so at the front of my porch, you know, eight feet from my door, they, uh, I, I put, I had enough of the spiky mats to put there because they started doing it there. And what they did with those is just push them out of the way. Yeah. Well, there are, you know, as far as a mulch that you can put in your beds, a lot of people have been successful getting pecan shell mulch. I have a friend that uh, went to a pecan cracker in Fredericksburg and got a bunch of it, and cats don't like walking on it. It's very hard on their paws. Mm -hmm. Uh, Same thing is true of lava gravel. And I've known people use both of those in their beds as mulch, and uh, it encouraged the cats to go somewhere else. Um, no one thing will work for every cat, but on mm-hmm. your door, on your mat, uh, cats in general don't like lavender. And many times you can get essential oil of lavender and spray around, and the right. cats will go elsewhere. Your veterinarian. I haven't tried. (laughs) About the only thing. (laughs) Well, one other thing to ask a veterinarian about, and uh, you know, I may ask Dr. Kirby about that in a little while today. But many veterinarians carry a product called Feel Away, F-E-L A-W-A-Y, like feline away. Mm -hmm. But Feel Away uh, is many times is is successful in getting the cats to go somewhere else. And uh, it's not an unpleasant product. Uh, there is a. This is another... at my front door, so you know right. I don't uh, want to put anything that smells bad. Right, um, and that's, also that's why critter ritter. Uh, yeah. That didn't make a particle of difference. Yeah. <laughs> you know. And there's another there's another stinky one out there by the liquid fence people. Mm-hmm. But try try the lavender. Lavender is very pleasant smell, and the feel away is not uh, an unpleasant smell at all and uh those would be the those would be my next my next stop at trying to mm-hmm. figure out what's going to work and let's uh try one or both of those and get back to me and I'll in the meantime I'll uh, ask Dr. Kirby if there's anything new in the veterinarian end of the world that he has to recommend yeah, but uh, I th- can't those understand are the two. why my door is so enticing you know uh, well the the problem i can tell you why your door is so enticing is it's red maybe they like red i don't know (laughs) for whatever reason one cat went and sprayed the door 
Right. kind of like, right. and you, and That's then That's what people every, have told me, you know. Yep. And then every male cat right. that comes around right. wants to put, leave That's his That's why I got rid of the mat, because somebody said, you yeah. have to get rid of the mat. First, I tried yeah. washing it. That didn't work. And then, yep. you know, squirting it off with water and letting it dry. And then somebody said, no, you have to get rid of the mat. So then I thought, well, what's the point of getting another one just like that? I'll get ru- a rubber one. And, yep. and for about, I guess I've had it a month, maybe. And then I noticed um, four or five days ago <clears throat> they've done yeah. it again, you know. Well, and, and ammonia is another thing that they don't generally like, but ammonia is not real pleasant smelling. Try the <laughs> lavender, try the feel away, and I'll ask Dr. Kirby if he has any other suggestions. Okay. All right. Thank you. You're certainly welcome, Pat. Uh-huh. <laughs> we'll we'll okay. get to the bottom of this one way or another. Yeah, I mean, I uh-huh. really don't want to have to buy a new door just because of cats. <laughs> I and not not having the problem under control. I wouldn't suggest that. So <laughs> let's try those and see how they work, and I'll look forward to hearing back from you. Okay, thank you. Bye. You're welcome. Goodbye. All right, uh, up next is Gary. Good morning, Gary. Morning, morning, Bob. How are you? I'm good. How about you? Doing good. Doing good. Hey, I've got a, uh, some flagstone walkway with a river uh-huh. rock in between the flagstone and my front coming to my front door. I've got yes, an sir. oak tree right there. I've got a, just hundreds of little oak seedlings coming up through the river rock. Uh, I was wondering how I could get rid of those things. Okay. First of all, unfortunately, they're not seedlings. They're not sprouting acorns. These are little growths that are coming off the roots of the oak tree. And... Uh, they they are a very common problem with live oaks, and there's not a real easy answer. Uh, the live oaks tend to produce all these little root sprouts in response to stress. And so the c- most common causes of stress in, in trees are, number one, drought. And these little sprouts are always worse when, you know, weather starts getting drier. And many times, if the oak tree, if the root flare is buried on the oak tree, if it's got soil piled up around the tree, this um, stresses the tree and will lead to an increase in, in the little root sprouts coming up around the tree. Uh, you can't use any real toxic sprays because you certainly don't want to kill the roots of the tree because then you end up right. killing the tree. But yeah. you can burn the foliage off of those. The vinegar orange oil mix will not hurt the big tree, but it will burn those back. But unfortunately, it's a temporary fix. They they will re-sprout. It's just uh, it's part of having live oaks. But like I say, if there's anything you can do to reduce stress, like thorough, thorough deep watering, like uh, maybe even using an air spade to be sure that the root flare is well exposed, those will cut down on the number of root sprouts you have. But uh, it's it's not little seedlings sprouting up. It's just things coming off the roots of the tree. And this is the nature of live oaks. Uh, you know, they they tend to reproduce. They form an interconnected root system, and if you're looking out at a mod of trees, you might think, oh, I've got 40 live oaks out there. In truth, you've got one live oak with 40 trunks coming up because the root system just, you know, totally meld and fuse together, and when they sense a stressful situation, they just start trying to make new trees. So this is what makes them so hard to get under control. But uh, those are things, again, try to eliminate the stress, and uh, you can mix your vinegar and orange oil pretty strong and use that. That will very definitely burn the foliage back, but unfortunately there's not anything out there short of taking out the tree that's a permanent solution. Yeah, I wonder if, uh, I guess maybe a, a pear burner, I could 
toast them like oh, that, absolutely. maybe? If you could do it safely. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, as, as dry as things are, uh, right. I, I hate to use anything that creates a flame, but, uh, yeah, right. a air burner will uh, certainly do, uh, will certainly do a number on it, most definitely. But, okay. again, it's just a temporary fix. Okay. Well, I might try the vinegar orange oil then. All right. All right. That's all I had. Appreciate it. Good question always. I appreciate the call. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, yeah, I guess I better pause here and get my last uh, break of the hour done. And JT will be up first when we come back. And I get to talk about Rhonda's Nature's Way. And, uh, you know, I'm always telling you about all the wonderful supplements and vitamins and things like that. Well, I got a different product from Rhonda the other day. It's called uh, Hemp Yay. It's a, it's a wonderful blueberry granola uh, with uh, hemp in it. And let me tell you what, this stuff is delicious. I, I really ought to be telling you about all the wonderful things that Rhonda has there that can help you with a diet plan, that can help you with some natural things. And you're getting some good supplements and uh, absolutely. Absolutely delicious things as well. So walk a little further than the vitamin aisle and the supplement aisle when you go over and see Rhonda because there are just so many things that she has. And uh, I've just never known anyone who knew more about nutrition and natural health and things that you can do to uh, hopefully eliminate all those little issues that we have in life, especially as we get a little older. Uh, maybe it's sleep. Maybe it's uh, mood issues. Uh, this, with all this COVID stuff going on, they're natural antidepressants. And uh, sometimes it just levels, evens life out a little bit uh, for you. And uh, Rhonda certainly has things that work, has things that will help with digestive issues, sleep issues. I want very much to keep my immune system in top condition because I think that's going to be the single best way to avoid getting COVID problems and you know, recovering from them if you do. And uh, I take a couple of immune support products that I get from Rhonda and uh, knock on wood, (laughs) the results so far are very good. I just don't know anyone that knows more about helping you stay healthy naturally. And like I say, don't overlook some of the really tasty, organic, good food stuff that she offers as well. Rhonda's Nature's Way, two locations, Southside Stores on Southwest Military, Northside Store there at the corner of uh, the shopping center at the corner of I-10 and Callahan open every day except Sunday you go find all the good stuff and check out reflexology check out the red light therapy check out the beamer therapy these are things we were talking with Howard Garrett about yesterday things that are medically accepted proven results and that's uh, they're just some of the other services they offer at Rhonda's Nature's Way all right, back to gardening. We're going to talk to JT and ET and uh, a couple of open lines after that. If you'd like to get through, if you've been getting a busy signal, be a good time to dial 210-599-5555. And uh, uh, back to the phone lines, JT is first. Good morning, JT. Hey, Bob. Good morning. Morning, hey, sir. I need help. I need help with two things. One are bodark okay. trees and, and phalaenopsis orchids. <laughs> very different, very different organisms. Uh, what's well, the deal yes, with the bodark? Well, I've got a bumper crop of bodark apples, and I'm wondering, uh-huh. can I propagate more trees with those? You can. Um, you know, wait till they fall, and each one of those apples is just a solid mass of seed. They're, you know, they're a couple of hundred seeds, uh, probably even more than that on there. But allow the allow the apple to mature on the tree, and 
as it dries, it will separate. You know, they make kind of a sticky rosin. And uh, yep. but yes, you can plant those seeds, and you can grow uh, new trees. They like a they like a good soil that drains well. They don't really like a caliche soil. Uh, where I see them grow in our area is along uh, creek beds. My business partner has some of them uh, growing right, you know, right at the edge of the Guadalupe River, where where that good old alluvial soil is there. But uh, Bodark can, you know, can certainly be grown, and uh, it's interesting, as you probably know, it's a yellow wood, and it's one of the hardest woods known to man. Uh, back in my college days, just a little aside, there was a whole line of old Bodark trees uh, kind of off the, the corner of the campus, and for whatever reason, uh, the city decided that they were going to go cut those trees down because they were blocking views or whatever. They burned up three saws trying to cut down the first tree, and then they just gave up and went away, and the trees won. So it's, uh, yeah, it's be, probably, be probably sure. The one... Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just saying it's probably the one tree that makes a better post than uh, cedar around here. Yeah. But yeah. There's not, not many of them. You see a lot of them down around Columbus and that kind of place. But anyway, yes, okay, I'll try some of those. I don't want a lot of them, but <clears throat> this yeah. tree's pretty old. I said, well, maybe I'll keep a few going anyway. Well, um, they're, they're a tough tree where, where my partner lives. She has about a 1,000 feet of Guadalupe River on her property, and this kind of a, a terrace up above the river uh, that gets flooded when, you know, when the river does flood. And she's got boat arcs that have been totally toppled down to a horizontal position, and then they just sprout out and keep growing. And uh, they are they are one of the real survivors in the tree world. As long as you have good soil for them, uh, they should, they'll probably last 100 years for you. So uh, I think they're a good yeah. tree. <clears throat> yeah, this one's in river bottom soil, so that, that's yeah. why I'm sure the rest of it, we've got all hill country. Anyway, uh, on the orchid, I need... 201 or maybe 301 of these. We've got two plants. I've never had any. But, and my wife got from our daughter a couple of years ago two plants and little plastic pots inside a decorative container. Right. And they were, of course, loaded loaded with flowers at the time. We kept them going for you know, quite some time and, <clears throat> and watered them you know, once a week to soak it and bring it out. Well, I started getting concerned what what you were telling people about that potting medium breaking down. Yeah. So I looked at it. Sure enough, it was. It was really kind of turn into mush so i bought some of your your mix there at your place uh the uh-huh. uh, bark chips and that right. kind of thing right. and repotted them and they're, they're flourishing still doing that one of them is well they're, they're both trying to put out more blossom they've since rebloomed and put out new uh-huh. spikes and all that kind of stuff the old flower spikes are still there and, and a couple of them are trying to put out new blooms at the end but do I just leave those existing spikes or what do we do well let's talk about how the plant itself looks overall are the leaves firm are they making good root growth uh do the do the plants look good and healthy yeah one of them in particular you know they both have grown a lot in the couple years we've had them one of them especially after I separate put them in different pots uh, yeah is really doing well one that's bloomed since I repotted it the leaves don't look as good as I would like for them to, and I don't know if I'm not getting enough water. I guess my main question is how do I water it? I've done the same thing, trying to 
soak them every few days, but they dry seem to dry yeah. out quicker. And, they do. They very definitely dry out more quickly in the bark mix. But uh, with Phalaenopsis, they don't have any water storage organs, so they they don't want to get totally dry between waterings. You probably have to water two or three times as often in bark as you did in the sphagnum. But basically, when you know when that medium seems dry, or when you lift the pot and it seems a little lighter in weight, water it again. Um, I'm watering my phalaenopsis probably three times a week at this point and feed regularly. Yeah. It sounds overall like you're doing very well. And uh, the the bloom cycle of a phalaenopsis is such that they typically will form new bloom spikes uh, fall and early spring. But if the plant is vigorous and healthy, that spike, that one spike, uh, can bloom. And after those blooms are gone, it may put on some more buds at the end, or it may branch out from dormant nodes further down the bloom spike and bloom repeatedly Uh, and if the plant's healthy nothing wrong with that if the plant is weak if the plant lost too many roots then sometimes I don't let them do that I go ahead and cut those bloom spikes off but in general I just wait until the bloom spike turns brown which uh, indicates that it's not going to do anything further and then clip it off and then like say typically you'll have new bloom spikes form uh, really November through February are when most of them are going to begin uh, flower begin growing but uh, yeah, these uh obviously are, these... oh, sorry yeah. go ahead you you obviously have the light down right it sounds like your plants are doing well in the bark you're probably going to repot about every three years but just uh I just advise you, I use has to grow plant and I also use Medina's new fish fertilizer on them, but just uh, feed regularly, water two, three times a week, and uh, it sounds like you're doing pretty well with them, JT. So they've got uh, bloom spikes, both of them have bloom spikes on them that are new, they're about almost a foot long. <laughs> well, keep on doing what you're doing, you're doing the right thing. Well, the, uh, okay. What about the air roots? Do you need to spray those between main water? I'll tell you what, uh, let me get Don to put you on hold. We'll talk a little more. This is KTSA Radio. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. And there is one line available, so grab it if you like. We're going to talk to JT a little more, then to ET, and then to Jim. And, uh, JT, let's talk just a little bit more about Phalaenopsis. And what I wanted to go over is, uh, you were talking about, uh, air roots, so to speak. But the, uh, Phalaenopsis, the air roots are exactly the same thing as the roots that are down in that potting medium. Now, some plants make different roots uh, up above ground, but Phalaenopsis in its natural home, it will be up clinging to the bark of the tree or the side of a building or some Somewhere like that. So those those roots that are coming out up above are exactly the same roots that are down in the potting medium, and they don't know they're supposed to stay in a pot. Like I say, in nature, they would be most likely on the side of a tree, and those roots would just be going everywhere. So um, just leave them and let them grow. It doesn't mean that the plant needs to be repotted. I definitely would not cut them off. In fact, the funny story related to that, I many years ago gave a phalaenopsis to an ant who put it in her kitchen window. Perfect place. Plant stayed in bloom constantly for three years. She came home one day 
and uh, a good helper uh, had cut all the roots off the plant because she thought it didn't look so pretty in the windowsill, and it was two years before the plant bloomed again. So, just it's perfectly normal, and those those are are the feeding roots of the plant. They just happen to be up in the air, as opposed to being down in the medium. So, when you water, when you fertilize, you know, just just drench it over those things as well as the ones that are in the pot, and it does not mean mean that your plant needs to be repotted. The time that you will repot is when that uh, bark medium starts to break down, which typically is about every three years. So I didn't do wrong burying some of those roots down in the potting medium. Then. Not at all. As long as you can do it without physically breaking them, uh, uh, you know, eventually you, you just have to plant that plant a little deeper and deeper and deeper because it, it's what we call a monopodial grower. It makes a single upright stem. Uh, when you decide to try some other types of orchids, we'll talk about different things. But uh, it sounds to me like you're doing a real good job of what you're doing, and I wouldn't I wouldn't change a thing except maybe water and feed a little more frequently. Yeah, I've been up, I've gone to twice a week with this dryer thing, but I think that's even yeah. quite, not quite enough. So. Yeah, right, probably not. It. Well, it's always a pleasure. You keep up the good work and call me anytime I can help. Thank you so right, much. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, E.T. is up next. Good morning, E.T. Morning, Bob. How are you today? I'm fantastic. Sun's coming out. It's going to be a wonderful day. Okay, I've got a question. What's the difference between a mosquito bite, a flea bite, or a tick bite? Okay, a mosquito bite. I'm making notes here so I don't get confused. Mosquito bite, flea bite, and a tick bite. Okay. Yeah. Um. A mosquito has a very unusual uh, apparatus, so to speak, and um, uh, imagine the the mosquito has this long, in effect, snout that it sticks down into you. In order to suck your blood out, it is pushing a material. Imagine, imagine the the barrel on a double barrel shotgun. That's a good analogy. I hadn't thought of before. Imagine yeah, a small <laughs> thing like that, and and it's pushing material out of one side of it, which creates a vacuum, which sucks the blood back up in the other side. And so this is how. Uh, in more tropical areas, well, actually, uh, when we when we look at diseases, that's how mosquitoes can spread disease. Fortunately, we don't have many diseases that affect humans, uh, but we certainly have things like heartworms that affect dogs. And the way that that you know the animal uh, gets the disease is this stuff that the mosquito is pushing down one tube in order to create the vacuum to suck up. Uh, stuff in the other tube, and that's why you get that welt. And um, so that's your mosquito bite. Your flea bite is more just a quick withdrawal of blood. The flea just bites you and feeds on the blood that comes out of the wound. A tick bite uh, is um, a much longer term. Thing. The tick bites, it embeds its head down into your flesh, and uh, it will, in effect, withdraw blood for several days, you know, at a time. And uh, ticks tend to carry some bad diseases, too, both for animals and for people. But it's not, uh, it's not that the tick is really putting a lot of material directly in like the mosquito does. The uh, the tick, the diseases that the tick carries 
are further down in the gut of the tick and it takes a long time before these things sort of work their way to the surface and are transmitted into you or into the dog or whatever organism has the tick on it. The tick remains attached for a much longer period of time. Um, it actually mates while it is attached. The little male ticks are very small. The female ticks can be uh, you know, when they can be the size of an English pea when they're fully mature and fully engorged with blood. But uh, all three of them are just nasty little creatures. All three of them can, uh, can spread disease. Um, the way that, uh, uh, that fleas generally spread disease is it, not something that they transmit directly, but a dog or a cat or whatever... Um, in trying to kill the flea and biting at the flea, many times fleas have the intermediate life stage, so to speak, of things like tapeworms uh, that are in the flea. The dog bites the flea, the dog swallows the flea, and then the tapeworm starts growing in the dog. And occasionally, uh, those tapeworms can get into people, most commonly uh, little kids, where, where the puppy dog bites the flea and then gives the child a nice lick in the mouth. <laughs> it sounds a little disgusting, but that's actually how children sometimes wind up with tapeworms, as it came from uh, being kissed in the face by a dog who had bitten a flea. So I'm not sure how much of that is uh, useful information to you, but you're just... Uh, bringing up a few things that I learned through a few years of biology and a lot of years of life. They're just three different creatures that can cause uh, three different problems in three different ways, so to speak. Okay. Does that help? What's the best solution to relieve the itch? Um, I use comfrey. Uh, comfrey, the juice of the comfrey plant is a great, great itch reliever. Uh, my grandmother used to use witch hazel, which is uh, something you can yeah, still that. get. And uh, camp, yeah, Campophonique, I think, is another one that uh, our grandmothers gave us. But uh, uh, my friend Rhonda over at Rhonda's Nature's Way, she actually has the comfrey and something that's called comfrey trauma cream or comfrey cream that has the comfrey in it. And it comes in a little tube, kind of like a toothpaste tube. And uh, if you want to not have to grow your own comfrey plant, uh, next time you're near one of her stores, uh, get some of her comfrey cream. And uh, it will not only take the itch out of a mosquito bite or a fire ant bite. It'll take the pain out of a wasp sting. Uh, comfrey is just an absolutely amazing healing product, and uh, it actually works. Uh, it's one of the best things that anybody has ever found to uh, heal a, a brown recluse spider bite. It's one of the few things that works. Dr. Kirby can tell you about that. He had a recluse yeah, bite. Yeah, I've been, I've been bit by one of them before, too, so... Yeah, and uh, it's uh, he went to a, a wonderful dermatologist who, you know, took out a lot of the tissue, and it was continuing to be a problem. I got him to start rubbing uh, comfrey on it, and two weeks later, it was totally healed without a scar. So lots of good things to be said about comfrey, but that's that's my choice for taking the itch out of just about any kind of bite. Okay, got one last question. I have some blood yes, meal. If I soak the blood meal in water and spray my pepper plants with it, will that deter the deer? Um, I would just put the blood meal dry on the ground at the base of the plants. I, uh, 
Um, I don't think I'd be wanting to spray that on something I was going to eat. I mean, it's uh, okay. It, it's yeah. just to the. <laughs> but I dry. It just depends on how hungry the deer are. Et right now it's so dry out there, and the deer are going to have a rough winter of it because there's just not a lot of food out there for them. They're going to be eating things that they normally wouldn't touch. Um, yeah, I know. They're devastating everything I have right now. Yeah. If if so, you want to uh, spray something on the foliage that'll slow them down, get the hottest peppers you can find. Uh, you know, and uh, habaneros are, are one of the more common hot peppers or scorpion or something like that. Blend that up and spray that on the foliage and uh, maybe put a little garlic in with it. That's going to be the best thing I know of you can spray on the foliage. It'll slow the deer down. Okay. Okay, great, Bob. I got chili pepin so I can grind them all up and put them in the smoothie. Okay, thank you, Bob. Yes, sir. You're sure welcome. Thank you for the call. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, uh, Jim, hang on a second. Got to get a break out of the way here, and then we'll be back with more phone calls. And uh, no lives done. Run the recording, and we'll get back to gardening. All right, back to gardening on a beautiful Sunday. It's going to be Jim and Manny and Emma, my next three callers. Jim is up first. Good morning, Jim. Hi, Jim. Are you there, Jim? Hello. Yeah, good Hello. morning. Yes, sir. Good morning. This is actually this is actually Manny. I don't know if oh, the name okay. got lost in translation there, but uh, hey, Bob, I've got a few questions. Yeah. Well, first off, I'm looking to, to build a strawberry box today, uh, bare uh-huh. root strawberries, and I'm I've never tried bare root, so I'm kind of just curious what kind of medium or soil you would recommend for that raised bed, and what can you share with me about bare root? Okay, well, strawberries grow very easily as bare root plants. That's uh, if you're planting any number of them. That's certainly financially the best way to go. Strawberries like a soil that drains well. They actually like a little sandier soil. That's why they do so well down around Floresville and uh, places south of San Antonio. So, if I were, you know, if I were creating a bed specifically for strawberries. I would probably start with just a good basic garden soil, and then I would either add some coarse sand like sandblasting sand or maybe a little bit of lava sand. You want your strawberry bed to be where it gets lots and lots of sun. Strawberries are cold hardy. Uh, our Texas, South Texas winters typically are no problem, but you're going to plant your bare root plants out there. You're going to space them out. I'd recommend probably about eight inches apart. Uh, if your bed can be reached from all sides, you can just, you know, plant a solid bed of strawberries. If you plant them in rows, again, I put the plants about 8 inches apart, and I put the rows about uh, 12 to 15 inches apart, and there's no such thing as too many strawberries. <laughs> it's, no, that's for sure. <laughs> but, okay, uh, well, I've got a couple more questions, if you don't mind, okay. while I have okay. you on the line. Uh, roses. So we had to put up a privacy fence not too long ago, and it, it significantly significantly kind of cut down on the amount of sunlight that this rose bush was getting. Would now be a good time to transplant that, or do you think we're too close to our, our freeze date there? Oh, no. Freezing weather's not going to bother a rose at all. I consider, if I had to pick the ideal time, best times for transplanting roses would be between Thanksgiving and uh, Valentine's Day. But we've cooled off. How how big is this rose? How long has it been in the ground? Oh, well, we kind of inherited it when we purchased this property. So we don't really know how long it's been in there, but it does look mature. It it can, when it, before the privacy fence was there, uh, fairly tall, fairly tall. Uh-huh. I'd say it probably got up to about maybe at its 
peak, maybe six feet. Um, and then, you know, but we overall, cut it back. But it, it looks like a good, healthy plant. Yes, for the most part. I mean, you know, there's some woody woody stalks on there, you know, as expected, but, but the plant <laughs> is still growing. Very good. Well, uh, the most important thing with transplanting a rose is do not ever allow the root system to dry out. Have your new okay. hole dug, uh, dig that plant, and, you know, do not, do not pass go, do not stop, do not do anything. <laughs> go straight to the new hole, uh, put it in, fill soil in around it, and water immediately. Um, and, uh, you know, I, golly, I can't think of how many roses I've transplanted in my life, and I don't think I've ever lost one. But the secret okay. is, and my old friend Alton Grimm is the guy that taught me this, do not ever, ever allow that a rose's root system to dry out. Um, you may need to cut it back a bit. I'd certainly take out the ugly old dead canes, but uh, mm-hmm. just to make it, uh, you know, something you can handle, uh, it's all right to cut it back a little bit further if you need to, and if you're going to, do it before you transplant, just because it'll make it a lot easier to do, but uh, water it in with a little Garrett juice, a little bit of Super Thrive, and as um, long as you're putting it in a good sunny place, I give it a very high probability of surviving and probably doing much better now that it's out in a brighter place. Okay, well, uh, just one more thing. Actually, it's kind of related. I have a farmer friend who had some, uh, and, and I wish I knew the identification, some kind of poppies that were growing out there uh, several months to maybe about a year ago, and he gave me some of the seeds off the deadheads there, and uh-huh. I've kind of had them in a jar. Uh, how can I go about trying to plant those those seeds is it is it best to try it in just some soil or can i just throw it out cast it into the soil outside and see if it takes basically cast it into the bed and uh do it immediately it's time to get poppies planted tell me about the plants that they came from um were they big plants were they smaller plants what color were the poppies they were they were fairly 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 large they were probably about maybe a purplish pink sort of color um, mm-hmm. God, I wish there was more I could I could share about it, but it was okay. really a few months now, ago. When when you look at a flower, was it a single row of petals, or was it more double like a like a big rose would be? If I recall, it was a single single okay. kind of structure. <laughs> Chances are, <laughs> put them somewhere you like them because you're going to have them from now on. Um, All right, <laughs> as you know, that little crucible look uh, up on the top of the poppy plant. Uh, as you know, every one of those things may have uh, 20 to 50 seeds in there, and mm-hmm. they tend to uh, re-sprout uh, very, very easily, um, you know, whether you like them or not. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, there, there's some great big oriental poppies that are, that are more difficult. Usually they're salmon in color, and they're usually double flowers and much taller plants, maybe 18 to 24 inches tall. But uh, what you're getting is just... Uh, you know, it's it's a basically a good old garden poppy. It's going to be one of the first things to bloom. The blooms don't last long, a couple of days at the very most, but they do tend to produce them very prolifically, and very few insects go after them. And so uh, uh hope you like it because you're probably going to have them from now on. There is a different poppy still while we're on the subject of poppies. It's called a California poppy. This is a little yellow to orange poppy that is also very, very worthwhile growing. It uh, blooms. The blooms last a longer period of time, and uh, they are 
typically even the plants may be perennial the plant itself may last for more than one year yours you can expect these plants to totally die out by midsummer but uh they're going to make enough seed that you can now share it with all of your friends if they admire it okay. but uh yeah just basically scatter the seed out on bare soil and water and the poppies will pretty much take it from there you want to water pretty frequently you want to water at least every day or two once they're up and growing you can cut back to watering a couple of times a week but uh if you like them you're going to have a very colorful bed out there would the same go for seed coming from inland sea oats i know it's a totally different plant but i also have some seed uh, inland sea oats going to be, um, I, I would actually work that lightly into the soil. I would loosen the mm-hmm. soil, spread your seed, and then just kind of rake it. You don't want to bury the seed real deeply. But, mm-hmm. uh, yes, you certainly can. In fact, if you want with your inland sea oats, you could actually start them in pots and then put them different places. But uh, generally, they grow fairly easily from seed. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work the soil a little bit more, and I'm actually going to cover the seed lightly with soil on your inland sea oats. And, of course, as I'm sure you know, they grow in the shade, whereas your poppies want to grow in the sun. Got it. Okay. And real quick, is there a native evergreen shrub you can recommend for full sun being blasted from the west? Oh, absolutely. Uh, how tall do you want the shrub to grow? Kind of, uh, I guess, uh, medium size, more or less a screen from a, from a somewhat busy street. But, uh, okay. you know, if, if I were to guess, maybe about 10, 10 15 okay. range. If you're looking for a hill country plant, um, evergreen sumac is going to be the one that will fit that bill best. Uh, if you would accept uh, something that uh, that I think is probably even better, but is native to East Texas, uh, the different Yopon hollies. Uh, my favorite is actually called Pride of Houston. It combines mm-hmm. evergreen with deer resistant, with beautiful red berries in the winter months, and uh, it would make a very satisfactory uh, hedge. And uh, it is a Texas native. Uh, although we don't have them really growing much in the wild here. The wild holly that we have here is another wonderful plant. It's called possum haw, but it drops all its leaves in the winter. Uh, it's Ilex decidua, whereas the Ilex vomitoria, which is the yopon, native to East Texas, but does very, very well in this part of the country and highly desirable, in my opinion. All right. Well, that's all I got, Bob. I appreciate your time. One one other thing to consider. Yes. Uh, it gets bigger than what you're really looking for, but uh, Mount Laurel can be uh, a very beautiful uh. green shrub, but it's not going to stop at four or five feet. It's going to grow up ten to twelve feet, and uh, so. Uh, but it, but where you're looking for native, it's a great great plant. Okay, we actually have a mountain laurel that uh, it's kind of in in recovery mode. It had been sort of shaded for several years by a yep. gigantic. Um, gigantic um tree that they let get out of hand previous the previous owners and um yeah that might be something we can move there i i would not move uh, uh mount laurels are very difficult to transplant from one uh, place to another okay. they're as hard to move as your rose is easy to move so uh, okay. uh more okay. mount laurels are fine but buy them in a pot and handle that root ball like a giant egg very very gently good. when you replant it and uh just a good plant good to know Okay, Bob, thank you so much. You're welcome, Annie. Appreciate the call. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, let's get back to gardening. And uh, actually, Jim is going to be first on this uh, break. It's going to be Jim and then Emma and then Joe. So good morning, Jim. Good morning, Bob. Can you hear me? I hear you loud and clear. Perfect. Okay, sometimes my reception is not so good out where I live. Hey, I got about a couple of questions, too, or maybe three, but I'll make them quick. 
I'm, okay. I want to pour a, a concrete slab for our metal prefab building workshop. Yes, My sir. predicament is it's the slab is going to be roughly about 11 to 12 feet from an existing uh, young pecan tree. Okay. Is that going to be a problem? I'll tell you what I would do. How how big is this pecan tree, uh, Jim? Oh, it's how big too big to move it. Okay, no, no, I, I wouldn't worry about moving it. But um, yeah. if, you know, putting a slab over existing roots can be a problem because those roots can continue to grow and could ultimately damage the slab. Uh, the tree is not, if it's a very young tree and you don't have any roots, it's not likely to have any roots over where you're going to pour your slab. Uh, a tree's mm-hmm. not going to grow roots under because there's nothing underneath the slab that it wants. There's no oxygen in the soil. There's very little water. There's virtually no nutrient. So trees don't tend to, you know, shoot their roots under a slab. But sometimes when you pour a slab on top of a root system, this leads to problems. And so what I would do if this is at all practical is do your slab like a builder would do a home. They dig a trench at the edge of that slab, which is called a grade beam. And I would dig a trench, whether you fill it back in or with concrete or whether you just fill it back in with soil. But I would dig enough of a trench down 12 to 18 inches that I have severed any root that that pecan tree has all the way over to where your new building's going to be. And that way you're not likely to have anything ever cause a problem with that slab. Uh, if I'm making sense, you know, it's not going to put new roots under there, but if there are any roots there to begin with down the road, that could be an issue. Does that does that make sense? Okay, well, let me tell you this. I'm going to, add, on a separate project, I'm going to rent a trencher to finish a, a, a water line project. Yep. So can I just, when I have the trencher, even if the slab's already poured, can I just dig the trench at that point to cut any roots that Absolutely. might exist? Absolutely. Okay, that's what I... Okay, because the canopy of the pecan tree, it's been in the ground about 15 years, is uh-huh. just maybe going to touch where the edge. No, it's not oh, even yeah. going to touch where the edge of the slab's going to be yet, but yeah, it will but, eventually. Yeah, you've yeah. got roots all over there. But uh, you said the, the tree is uh, 10, 12 feet away from the slab at this point? Yeah, where the slab will be, it's about almost. Tw- it's exactly about twelve feet away. The trunk yeah, of the tree. well, then you're not going to hurt the tree at all doing that. Uh, my arborist friend tell friends tell me that when you want to calculate how close you can get to uh, a tree cutting roots without damaging the tree, they say take the diameter of the trunk in inches and convert that. Uh, take half of it and convert it to feet. If that tree, you know, has an eight-inch trunk. Divide by two is four. You don't want to stay four feet away with your trencher. In this case, this could be a monstrous tree, and if you're 10, 12 feet away, no problem with damaging the tree. So uh, that would be, you know, that that would be exactly what I would do. Now, for the benefit of other listeners, if this were an oak tree, I would paint any cut uh, roots that I cut because you could get oak wilt started in those roots uh, through a root wound if the tree trench remains open for any length of time. case of pecan tree, we're not worried about oak wilt, so you just trench along the edge of where the slab is going to be, fill it back in, and uh, don't worry about it. Okay, that's easy enough. My second question, I need a hedge to, uh, he's out there so I can't say too loud, block my neighbor's view. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, he sir. just 
He doesn't keep up his yard. And I was looking at some standard Burford Hollies. I've I've had Burford Hollies at a previous house, and I really liked them. Um, how tall will they get, the standard, and how far apart should I plant them? Um, they'll grow 10, 12 feet tall. Uh, if you want okay. a dense hedge, I would put them about yes. four feet apart. But tell me this, where, what part of town do you live in? Oh, I'm between Lytle and Somerset and Pure Sand. Oh, okay. And they're going to be yeah, on the you're, west, you're fine. west fence. They'll get plenty of sun, yeah, where yeah, they're at. Well, I, I was more concerned about soil. If you told me Stone Oak, I was going to tell you find some other than Burford Holly. But, uh, yeah, where you are, Burford Holly would be just fine. Other shrubs that you might want to look at, if you want something that's going to grow faster but be a good evergreen shrub, look at Xylosma. It's spelled X-Y-L-O-S-M-A, like xylophone, X-Y-L. Uh, Xylosma will grow about twice or three times as quickly as Burford Holly, and it'll certainly get up to that 12 to 15 foot height. And um, uh, that's just one other one I would consider. But if you like big Burfords, just be sure you're not getting the dwarf. Dwarf's only going to grow about five to six feet. But yeah, yeah, I had those before as a hedge, as a foundation plant, and I liked them. But I need something taller. So that yeah. other plant you mentioned, it's an evergreen as well? Yes, sir. Okay, and it's Very, spelled, can you spell X, it again for me real quick? Yeah, X is an X-ray, X-Y-L-O-S-M-A, Xylosma. Xylosma, I'll Google it, I'll Google it while I'm listening to the show. Okay, thank Very you. Very good. Have, have you ever been to our nursery? Yes, uh, only, uh, two, two or three times. It's It's been a while since I live a long okay. ways away, but I used to well, work at Fort Sam's. So I would come over there periodically. Well, I'm, I'm I'm not trying to get you to come over here, but what I want to tell you is if you were out in front of the nursery on Sunset Road and you look uh-huh. at the little strip center next to us, that giant plant that just totally obscures the front of that building, that's the xylosma. If you want to see a mature plant and uh, see how big it can get. Now, you don't have to let it get as big as this one. This one's probably you know, 20, maybe 18 or 20 feet tall, and it's full from the ground up. But uh, just if you come this way, that's you can you can drive by and look and see what a mature xylosma looks like. And um, and, and it would be, I, I don't know, it's just, I, I like big Burfords, and in the area that you're in, uh, your soil's going to do very well. But uh, if you start with five-gallon plants, you're probably looking at three or four years for it to get up to that 10 to 12 feet height. Uh, 10 to 12 foot height. If you did the same size, mm-hmm. I love somebody to get there probably in two years. So just depends on how fast you want to block that view. Okay, on three gallon pots, because that's what I was eyeing um, yeah. this morning. How long would it take those to reach maturity, full height, like 10 feet, roughly? Figure, Five figure years. that. Figure that uh, that a standard Burford is going to grow about a foot a year if you take good care of it. A Xylosma is going to grow three to four feet a year if you take good care of it. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll look it up. Thank you. You're welcome, sir. Thank you for the call, and have a great Sunday. Appreciate it, Jim. You too. Thank you. All right. Let's go ahead and talk to Emma. Good morning, Emma. Good morning. Good morning. So, I have a couple of questions also. Okay. So, my first question, in my backyard, I have several brown spots, and it's just where grass won't go grow. And how big it are seems these like spots? How, sort of, how big? Um, some yeah. can be like 20 feet by 4, some can be 4 oh, okay. by 4. They really vary. Okay. okay. And it seems like a disease or something spread because they're just all dried up and dead. But I'd like okay. to 
recover them. Okay. If you were to go out and lift up on the dead grass, do the uh, runners lift away from the ground or are the runners still firmly attached to the soil? Um, they're attached. Okay, because the most common cause for big patches of dead grass like that is going to be grubworm damage. And usually, at least some of those runners will come up simply because the roots have been cut. So grubworm damage is the most common reason we see big dead patches like that. Um, if they remain firmly attached to the ground, then you're probably looking either at a fungal disease or at a spot that's just not getting the water that it needs. In either case... Um, you can, you know, if, if it's totally dead, you may want to put either some little plugs or some actually new squares of grass in there. And this is not a bad time of year to do that. Um, and, you know, even if it's grub worms, I'm not worried about the grub still being in the soil. But most grasses Hello, especially... can you say, hear me? I can hear you just fine. Can you hear me? Okay. Um, you know... Grub worms are just the most common cause of problems, and uh, they are when the June bug lays the egg in the soil. Uh, then the little grubs hatch out, they eat the roots of your grass, and that leads to a lot of dead patches. Uh, nothing at all wrong with planting some more grass this time of year. Uh, put it very firmly, you know, stomp it into the ground, so to speak. Water on a daily basis until it gets some roots well established, fertilize, and uh, be a good time to get some more grass started. Okay, great, thank you. And then I do have one more question. Okay. So I planted a dragon fruit tree in my yard a little over a year ago, and it just uh -huh. started forming. But okay. now I'm getting a lot of lizards, like an overwhelming amount of lizards everywhere. And I was just, uh -huh. I'm kind of confused. So I was wondering if once the dragon fruit fully develops, will they turn into dragons? <laughs> I trust you're kidding. <laughs> uh, no, and, and the one thing about dragon fruit, even though it is a, uh, uh, a really neat and tasty fruit is not cold hardy. So uh, you and the lizards are both going to have to have some winter protection to get through the winter with your dragon <laughs> fruit. So cover it if it gets really, really cold. But uh, no, the, the lizards are going to be miniature dragons about four inches long and nothing to worry about. <laughs> okay, great. Thanks, that really Emma. helps a lot. Thank you. <laughs> Thank have a good day. You bye do bye. the same. Goodbye. Well, I love her. But I love to fish I spend all day out on this lake And hell is all I catch But today she met me at the door Said I would have to choose If I hit that fishing hole today She'd be packing all her things And she'd be gone by noon I'm gonna miss her when I get home Right oh, now that's, that's another good one. on this late show <laughs> Alright, uh, those of y'all that don't know, our wonderful engineer, Mr. Don Cooper Stevens, always finds us a a fishing song for the last commercial break of the show, and Don, I think that's a new one. I don't think we've heard that one before, but uh, that's Keeper. We'll play, we'll play that one again sometime. 
All right. Well, I guess we better finish up with a little bit of gardening. Uh, we've got Joe and Jeff, and Joe is up first. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Bob. Wow, that's music to my ears. Yes, sir. So, <laughs> hey, um, I got a question. I have a about a 10-year-old Meho Tatsuma mandarin mm-hmm. tree. It's okay. on a 10 it's on a 10 gallon pot it's uh-huh. been there for many many years it's got a, a good four inch diameter trunk and the tree wow. is about it's about four but well about three feet tall from the bottom of the plant from the bottom of the dirt on in the okay. pot wow every year i'll get plenty of little mandarins this uh-huh. year bob I got one mandarin, and this thing is as big as a grapefruit. What causes that? <laughs> well, there are a lot of different things that can. Uh, did it bloom normally? Did it have a lot of flowers? No, no. Okay. Mm-mm. The most common thing, and if you remember back, we had uh, a pretty late freeze this fall, or, or this spring, rather. And um, mm-hmm. what happens is. Those little buds, even if we can't see them, uh, those buds are forming right now. They're called bud primordia. And if we get a real cold uh, late freeze after those little buds have started to try to develop, then they just never even become flowers. So my suspicion is that a late freeze froze the bud before they could really before most of them could open. Um, the reason you got a giant fruit is probably just because, you know, that tree basically had enough energy stored up to make, you know, 50 mandarins instead of just one, but because uh, it only had the, you know, very few flowers, just one of them got pollinated to make the fruit, that one fruit uh, turned into something of a giant. Hopefully, if we get back to a more typical weather pattern, uh, you'll have lots of flowers this spring and uh, consequently lots of fruit, but I doubt that you'll ever see a fruit that big again. Okay, so my next question, I know the majority of the uh, fruit uh, citrus trees are grafted. I couldn't get the seeds from that one fruit and grow something that is going to put out fruit that big, huh? You know, there's no way of knowing. Um, a a seed, no matter what the plant, is genetically unique. You can have a thousand seeds from that tree, and every one of those seeds will have a slightly different genetic makeup. And there's no telling what you will get. The problem with growing citrus from seed is it takes seven or eight years before it'll have the first fruit on it. When you get a grafted tree, you're you're grafting mature wood onto a rootstock and kind Consequently, you can have fruit the first year, but if you were to plant the seed, you're looking at minimum six, seven, eight, nine years before you'll see the first fruit, and uh, then you don't know whether it's going to be better than the parent, worse than the parent, or the same as the parent. So you can plant some seed from that fruit, but I, I the chances of uh, you know having, and, and you might get a tree that makes big fruit, but uh, it's pretty long odds against it. The majority of those seeds are going to be fairly similar to the tree that it came from. I see. Okay. Well, I thought I I had something going on there. 
<laughs> well, you know, if you told me that the whole tree suddenly reverted and all the fruit was that giant size, but uh, it's it's a common thing. Uh, like uh, you you know the uh, the what they call the football mums, the giant chrysanthemums that. Uh, you know, I mean, even back in my high school days, we got that giant so-called football mom around homecoming mm-hmm. time. And, you know, the flower I'm talking about that's six or seven inches in diameter. The way that they make that happen is they grow the chrysanthemum and um, someone does this by hand. They go off and on, go, they go out and on the stem of the chrysanthemum, they take off every other bud and they only let one bud develop. So instead of having 20 smaller flowers, you get one giant flower. And um, so uh, it's a fairly common practice. Your rose growers, when it comes time for a rose show, they'll cut off all the buds except for one bud on that plant, and that flower will end up being much bigger and sometimes much more intensely colored. And that's kind of what happened to your mandarin. It just uh, <laughs> it just put all its energy into making that one fruit, and chances are it'll go back to you know being the totally normal small nice fruit. Baby. Yeah, the genetics well, anything, didn't change, just the just the growing situation. I well, if anything, it makes for a conversation piece. <laughs> Absolutely. Take, Absolutely. I took plenty of pictures. <laughs> All right, <thank laughs> you, you, you got bragging rights, Joe. You get out and have a great yeah. Sunday, and uh, let's get Jeff in here for the end of the show. Good morning, Jeff. How are you doing? I'm great. How about you today? I'm fine. I had a question for you. We have a blood red orange. We bought it orange tree at... We bought it at Costco. It's about four feet tall, two years old, and two years in a row now it's produced one orange, a delicious uh-huh. orange, but just one. And we're wondering if there's anything we can do about that. Or uh, Move to McAllen, Texas, and plant it in your front yard, and it'll, <laughs> it'll be much happier. Blood orange is a really, really neat orange tree. It's just not dependably cold-hardy in our area. And it is a variety that doesn't make a lot of fruit. Now, uh, are you here in the San Antonio area? Yes. Okay. Um, You're going to need to protect it if we have really cold weather. And just as that tree gets bigger, it will make more fruit. But uh, it's going to have to grow into, you know, a substantially larger tree. And that's gonna maybe a little tough for you to protect. Of course, we've been having milder winters, so uh, that may not be an issue. That tree, as the tree gets bigger, it will very definitely produce more fruit. But the reason you don't see a lot of them, and uh, the ones you do see, usually the trees freeze back to some extent every year, which just keeps them from having a lot of what we call budwood on there that's capable of making oranges. Uh, if you'll protect that thing, anytime temperature is going to get uh, anywhere near or below freezing uh, it will make a much bigger tree and over time you get a lot more fruit off of it but uh, the issue is just you've got a tropical tree in a temperate zone uh, what kind of orange tree would be good uh the so-called uh, satsumas uh many people call them tangerines are totally cold hardy here there is yeah. a uh, uh little uh orange called the kumquat uh, there's a sweet kumquat and a sour kumquat. Those are normally totally cold-hardy here. And uh, the satsumas, they'll go down into the teens without any damage. But uh, most true oranges and most true grapefruit won't take a hard freeze. 
But uh, okay. if you're looking for you're looking for a mandarin, look for miho or sito. Uh, there's several good mandarin oranges that'll do very well here. And uh, uh, you know, about once every thirty years, we get enough uh, cold weather that it might bother them. So they're they're a good choice. Okay. Well, thank you very much, sir.